Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter Podcast. I'm your host, Communications Director Tony Heil, here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Uh, we are 60-plus episodes into our podcast series, and we have today a returning guest and someone that you would have thought would have been part of the podcast for, like, episode one or two, and that's Chapter President Ellen Phillips. Uh, if you live anywhere on the East Coast and you've heard of ALS, you've probably heard the name Ellen Phillips before. And if you live in Pennsylvania, there's a good chance you've heard of Brian Cutler before, who was our returning guest and the majority whip in the Pennsylvania State House. Before we get to our conversation today, which we'll be talking about uh, their history with ALS, advocacy, some events, and of course the Phillies, because we can't talk to Ellen and not talk about that, which is good. Uh, we want to let you that there's a lot of ways you can get involved now. You can go to our website, www.alsphiladelphia.org. You can follow us on social media, all at ALS Philadelphia. And Brian's very good at Twitter and retweeting some of our great stuff. So look on us on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. And, of course, look for us at a, one of the seven Walk to Defeat ALS events we have coming up this year. ALS Express coming up in June. And Advocacy Day is coming up both in Washington, D.C. and in Pennsylvania. And other ref- efforts going on in New Jersey and Delaware. And for those, you can email me or email me about other topics you'd like on the podcast at Tony at ALSPhiladelphia.org. With that out of the way, uh, Brian and Ellen, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks Pleasure. for having us. Thanks. I, I, it's a lot of effort for me to get everyone together. I have my baby in another room. I'm hoping he's fine. I trust everyone in this office. Um, maybe too much, but he was happy enough once we started here. I think he'll be fine. And he seemed he, to be. He may not want to go home. Well, that would be very, I mean, for a day, that'd be fine. Uh, but so we're, we're talking about something serious here, which is, both of you have very personal ALS connections, um, and both of you actually have more than your first ALS connection because each one that you've met throughout the years, um, Brian for over 20 years now, involved with the ALS cause, Ellen for over 30 years, you've just developed more and more personal connections to the disease. Um, but Brian, let's start with you. Um, how did ALS first uh, touch your life? And you don't have to go into the greatest detail like last time, and we encourage you to look at listen to his last podcast. Um, but What's your ALS connection? Well, I had the unfortunate distinction of having both of my parents have ALS. And um, and that you know, that was like one of like eight people in the country or the world? That- correct. It was one of eight people uh, that they knew of historically, then one of two couples that were alive at the time. And uh, it was very unique. In fact, it, it lent itself to uh, the, the neurologist actually thought that perhaps they had misdiagnosed mm-hmm. uh, my mom's illness. My mom became ill between my freshman and sophomore years in 1990. And then my dad uh, began having symptoms shortly thereafter. And then my dad actually passed away uh, in April of 93 in my senior year in high school. Uh, but through through the ALS chapter and, and the clinic at Hershey is obviously where I connected with Ellen. Yeah. And so you were 15 years old at the time? Correct. And I mean, it's not easy to deal with a parent or a loved one having ALS, but to be 15 years old and facing becoming a caregiver, that that must have been a light switch of you know, being a normal kid with, you know, with all the things going on to suddenly having to take on this very great responsibility? Well, it, it was in several regards. One, and most people are surprised to learn this, I was not the best student before my parents got sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, uh, I, I kind of just went through school, got mostly B's and C's and then occasional A and never really applied myself. But once my parents got sick, uh, starting 
my sophomore year, second semester, I carried a 4.0 until I graduated. Uh, and I took all advanced placement courses. And of course, my teachers were like, they were somewhat surprised as well. But for me, it was kind of a wake up call of, you know, life is serious business and my parents aren't going to be here to, uh, you know, help me along all the way. In fact, the roles were somewhat reversed in the fact that at 15 and my sister at the time was, had just turned 13, we were put in the position of, of really being the managers of the household. Uh, you know, we had our family uh, and, and friends who helped us as well. Uh, they were, uh, certainly we would not have been able to been so successful without their help. They helped us, you know, in terms of fundraising and we put some, some modifications into our home mm-hmm. and purchased a wheelchair van and things like that. And, but, you know, the day-to-day operation of the house and the staffing, um, my sister really took the lead on a lot of that. And it certainly shaped both of us in terms of how we became involved in what we do now, because uh, I went on to become an x-ray tech and then eventually, uh, got a law degree in healthcare law and ran for the legislature. And she is a nurse uh, who works out at University of Salt Lake uh, Health Systems out in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, um, you know, we both ended up in healthcare in large part because of our exposure to the industry and, and our family histories. And there's not a lot of other x-ray techs in the state legislature, right? Correct. Uh, I am now the only one. Senator Tim Salabai used to be the other one, uh, but he lost re-election and is now the state fire commissioner. In fact, there there's not a lot of healthcare professionals in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Representative Judy Ward, who is a nurse mm-hmm. uh, in the House, Senator Pat Vance, who of course is a nurse in the Senate. And uh, we have a couple other folks. Uh, Keith Gillespie was a paramedic and a former hospital administrator over in York County. And we have several folks who work in the nursing home industry uh, Mm -hmm. and the long-term care facility industry. Uh, That was um, Representative Pam Delisio from Philadelphia, who I've worked with on on some issues as well as... Particularly this one. Correct. Correct. And then uh, also Maury Gingrich. Uh, Mm -hmm. She worked... uh, Representative Maury Gingrich worked in the nursing home and long-term care facility arena prior to her... Uh, coming to the legislature. So we have some healthcare knowledge, but out of 253 members, uh, there's not a lot. And that's why the advocacy of the association and the patients coming up and sharing their stories is so important. It must not be that surprising then from your background, knowing that those people who do have a healthcare background kind of get issues like ALS very quickly. Correct. I mean, because we, for some time now, anybody who's worked in the healthcare industry recognizes the costs that come with all of the medical advancements that we have. Um, and, you know, it, obviously the disease progresses differently in every person, but with some of the, the focus therapy and the, and the clinics now, folks, you know, my dad who passed away in a fairly traditional timeline of, you know, roughly 18 months to two years, uh, which was ironically the same prognosis that my mother was given, but she lived until September of 1999. And, um, in large part due to her stubbornness. I'm, I've always been very convinced of that for anybody who knew my mother. Um, and she just day to day set a goal and she wanted to see my sister and I graduate and then she wanted to see us get married. And she just, she lived one day at a time and, and set goals. And uh, it was very evident in her life. Uh, but, you know, her her presentation and, and her disease process was very different. But because of that, uh, you know, ultimately she ended up going into a, a long-term care facility and we were in the position where we were spending down her life savings mm-hmm. uh, to provide that care. And that's a perspective that I try to bring as a policymaker. And knowing that most of these patients at some time end up on Medicaid or some other governmental 
assistance related program, uh, it is far better for us in terms of financially for the state as well as for the health reasons for the patient to care for them in place at home. Right. And um, that is, uh, thankfully, you know, the medical community has been a great advocate for that as well, but it also saves the taxpayers money. And I know we were talking prior to the podcast, Ellen and I, um, she was commenting on my presentation uh, that I gave to the Appropriations Committee on this and the other healthcare related line items because of the monetary impact it has on the budget. Uh, you know, I did a, uh, about a five or 10 minute speech maybe in front of the Appropriations Committee for this because it will continue to drive all of the costs in our budget as we go forward. So we have to do, do this in a very cost efficient manner for the state. But the bonus here is, of course, it's actually better for the patients as well. So I, I think it's a win-win on both sides. You know, there's very few things you can do in public policy that actually cut the cost of health care. And letting people stay in their home, which is what people want, um, is one of those big things that you can do. And I'm going to talk to Ellen now, because um, you had someone that also wanted to stay at home, and you understand the value of that um, because of your own personal ALS connection. So, Ellen, no one on the podcast has heard your ALS story, though they probably have. I'm sure they have. Yeah, a lot of them have. Welcome but. to those of you who haven't. We have listeners in, like, Australia and Germany. Great. So, not always, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, my story uh, just begins um, in 1982 with my husband, Alan, who was experiencing uh, some difficulties playing uh, basketball. Uh, he was a, a lawyer by trade and uh, a, an amateur, amateur athlete um, with grandiose visions of, you know, being a star mm-hmm. basketball player and at age, at a height of five feet seven. But, you know, it can happen. And he uh, played in a league, and for three weeks in a row, he came home earlier and earlier and earlier. And the first uh, week, he said he didn't make any points, which was unusual. The second week, he um, couldn't uh, reach the basket. And the third week, he couldn't get his hands over his head. Mm-hmm. So we That's knew very quick. It was. In terms of understanding yeah, that. Yeah. And... Um, he would try to lift a half gallon of milk, and he couldn't. So he, we went to the uh, regular primary doctor, and he couldn't decide whether to send him to a neurologist or put him on like an anti-inflammatory, which he did. And we went back in a month or so, no change, worse actually. And so then he uh, went to see a neurologist. Um, and I just remember so vividly the day of the appointment. He said he didn't need me to go with him, but and it was at 9 o'clock in the morning, and by 2 I hadn't heard from him, so I was really upset. And when he called me, he said they think there's something really wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And um, and you didn't necessarily think it was going to be anything that serious at no, the time. No, had no idea, no idea. Um, and then... Um, we had tests, and I also, the, these things stick in your mind, don't they? You never forget different things and dates. But uh, we went to Pennsylvania Hospital, and he had to stay there for several days of testing, including a spinal tap. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, his brother was in medical school and went over and read his chart and saw that they suspected ALS. But they nobody said anything uh, to Alan, I, I knew that that was a suspicion. 
mm-hmm. um, and the this was the end of of the year in 1982, and so somewhere between Christmas and New Year's, um, we were called back to the uh, doctor's office, who told my husband that he had ALS and we should have a happy New Year. Yeah. And That's so, not a great way to start or end the year. No, no. So I remember going to a library and I needed anything I could find about Lou Gehrig. I knew that he gave this speech. I was, I've always been a baseball fan, but I didn't know what happened between the time he retired from baseball and he died. And that was when ALS did its most damage. So I was reading like a landmark book mm-hmm. series um, and that didn't tell me much either. Um, but I certainly found out soon enough. And and very quickly from there, you wanted people, more people to know about ALS and what it really was, and also to get more help out there. Because in 1982 and then 83, there wasn't what we have today. There wasn't what we had when Brian's family had ALS. We had a chapter that was started in 1977 by Felice Weiner, whose mother had ALS. And Felice is still involved today. Well, unfortunately, Felice has ALS herself now, which is just so tragic. Just tragic. Um, she's just uh, has was recently diagnosed. Oh. And uh, I, I guess you didn't. No, I, you, I you, had you, heard. Yeah, but that's the frightening part of ALS. You don't know mm-hmm. if or when the other shoe is going to fall. Right. And someone else in your family is going to get ALS, as it did with Felice. I know. I mean, even my grandfather had ALS, mm-hmm. and while it's rare that you get more than one in a family line, I always, exactly. you know, I told my dad when he goes to the doctor that it's not going to be something. Right, right. And I feel the same way about my daughter and hopefully future grandchildren. Right. We're always on alert, and right. that's why we're all working so hard. Right. There's three of us sitting here with tears in our eyes because <laughs> we know what can happen. So Felice started the organization. Her mother lived in Rhode Island. She was living here. She still is. And um, and there were a few uh, people who became president after Felice. And then when my husband was still ill, the woman who was president before me asked me if I could be the next president. And I said, I can't. I have to take care of my husband. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he died in September of 1984. And I'd say within three weeks, she was back again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and said, well, this time my husband is leaving the country because he worked for a pharmaceutical company. Will you please, please become president of the organization? And I said, well, if I can work from the third floor of my house with my daughter, then I'll do whatever I can. And um, I've been working. We've moved out of the third floor. Um, right. but And I've moved houses, actually. Um, and my daughter's now 34 and married. But we're all still working. And your daughter was only a few years old at the time. While not the caregiver that Brian was to his parents, because he was obviously a teenager and could do things, your daughter, I mean, I've seen pictures, you know, and it's impacted her even today. Absolutely, um, yes. Partly because of your continued involvement, but, you know, your daughter, I'm sure you remember that your daughter cared for your your husband. Oh, absolutely, she did. No, no, No second thoughts about that. She would go and get his shoes or always want to take a ride on the wheel in the wheelchair and we had a stair glide up and that was a big treat to sit on daddy's lap and go mm-hmm. go up so i think you know when i think about stories like that and i've seen a lot of stories as a father myself 
you know, I think about the kids that get involved. But it also kind of points out that people intrinsically want to help from birth. You know, like, I think that my son who's here, he's three months old, he probably wants to help Donna. <laughs> and maybe he's making some fundraising calls now. That'll be you good. never know. Uh, but for both of you, you've realized over the years that when you bring up the story of ALS, people actually do want to find a way that they can help, right? Sure. I mean, you... you In many different ways. And I learned from other people things that they've done to do fundraising and awareness activities that even if they're not here in Philly, even better, I can take them back from a, a national meeting and say, why don't we try this? Right. And, and Brian, you know that a lot of people love to say that all politicians are horrible people, which, you know, that's just what pe people look, look on TV and they just think that all everyone does is yell at each other. But whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, the Whigs, I think they're making a return. Um, <laughs> Hopefully they, soon. They, um, <laughs> Well, I mean, I need one, I think, but uh, people actually go into office because they also do want to help. Right. And that's really one of the reasons why I ultimately ran for office was, as I alluded to earlier, I eventually was able to go to law school. I mean, I was 28 when I went back to school uh, and in large part because of the, the calendar or the timeline, if you will, when I was supposed to traditionally do that. It just couldn't happen. Uh, and... It was a lifelong dream of mine to go to law school, and I was able to do it uh, at a much older age. Thankfully, my wife was very supportive of me uh, as well. I mean, goodness, she let me quit a perfectly stable full-time job to mm -hmm. then go back to school full-time. And um, I, I like being a cat man a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it, yeah. was, it was fun. But um, I felt like none of that would have been possible uh, but for the fact that our community, our church, and our friends were so helpful during my teenage years to make sure that my sister and I still had as as much as possible a normal life, the opportunity to do things, to both continue our education. And I felt like public service was an opportunity to give back to my friends and neighbors, many of whom still stay in contact and are, are still local. Uh, and I could use my knowledge and my experiences, both from life and education, uh, to help our community and, and advance uh, this issue, among many others, to the benefit of all the people who helped me uh, much earlier in life. Right. That's exactly. I think that, you know, it gives me hope meeting people. We go to D.C., we go to Harrisburg, and Ellen, you've been doing this for far longer than I have. And you talk to people and they understand ALS. They want to get involved and do something. Um, but one of those people, and I'm going to get to how you guys met, and that's why I'm kind of going differently from our uh, outline, is um, one of the people, groups of people that really wanted to help once they found out was the Philadelphia Phillies. Right. And that was very early on. Very. And I think it's significant. People don't realize that ALS wasn't in the news as much. Um, there wasn't, obviously, an Ice Bucket Challenge. There wasn't Steve Gleason. There wasn't Kevin Turner, who sadly recently passed away. Um, but your family got the Phillies involved in the 1980s. They did. My, my mom, uh, specifically. Uh, when my husband was diagnosed, my mom looked everywhere for uh, champions of the cause. She had a connection down in Baltimore and went to the Orioles and said, ALS belongs in baseball. They thanked her, and that was it. She tells the story, she's been gone now, but she tell, told the story of going to the Yankees and they wouldn't even give her a cup of coffee. She tried to make the connection between Lou Gehrig, obviously, and baseball. 
no deal. Uh, finally, she found someone who introduced her to, who introduced her to Nancy Giles, uh, who uh, husband then was president. He's now chairman emeritus of the Phillies. And uh, coincidentally, there had been an article in the Inquirer that had just run about our family and my husband's uh, battle with ALS. And my mom said, did you see that article? And Nancy replied, yes, I was very touched by it. And my mom said, well, that's my daughter. And again, ALS belongs in baseball. Will you talk to your husband about allowing us to get more, to get involved with the Phillies? We uh, set up a meeting. I went down with um, my mom and uh, the then executive director of the National ALS Foundation, as it was called then. And we were sitting... That's how people keep getting us from excuse. That's it, right. Uh, we were sitting in Bill Giles' office. I looked around at all these amazing photos and paintings of all these baseball players that I'd been following since I was six years old. And the first thing he said was, I'm sorry you can't be the Phillies charity. And I was like... Well, then what are we here for? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say it. He said, but we can make you the charity of the Phillies wives. And if you have the wives, you have the team. So in 1984, they did their first event for us, which was a dinner and fashion show. And that raised $28,000, which was seven times more than our budget. Mm -hmm. So we were ecstatic. Yeah. And, and, and suddenly you could do things. Right, right. And we could have some... Uh, services mm -hmm. and uh, thanks to Jeff Abrams family they funded our first center in 1984 and things success breeds success no matter how small it just kept growing and uh, the Phillies launched us. There's just no doubt about it. They they put us on the map, and we started being able to do, as I said, more services, but also outreach to patients and outreach in the community. People would say, oh, I've heard it. I wore a pin once to Macy's. And they said, oh, we know ALS. You're the Phillies charity. And, and people still know us that way. We still get referrals through the Phillies of people who need help because their friend or whomever has ALS, they go to the Phillies and say, we know you know how to put us in touch with the ALS community. Yeah. I remember when I first got this job and I told somebody in the area and that that was the only thing they knew about ALS was that it was connected to the Phillies. Which, and so $28,000 in 1984, 85, now it's over $16 million total. It's 30 plus years of longevity with them, 30 plus years of Ellen working with them. You mentioned Jeff Abrams and 30 plus years there. Brian for twenty plus years. That's well over a hundred years of no, but of work towards this goal, and it's making a difference. Um, but I brought the Phillies in now because Phillies are partly how you two met, right? I think it, it is definitely how we met face to face, right? Because well, that's how I count as a meeting. That is a meeting. <laughs> uh, but I had heard about Brian and his sister and his parents mm -hmm. um, from Sue Walsh, who was... Again, the, longevity. She's been around with the cause right. for 20-plus years. I, I actually reconnected with her when you all sent out an announcement, and I said, you know, my parents had a nurse, Sue Walsh. She wouldn't happen to be the same one. <laughs> and we, we were able to meet for coffee, and it was great to see her. And I later found out, I, I think I'm essentially bookending her career, because... You know, in terms of her involvement, that was one of her first jobs, uh, and the beginning. You know, with my mom and dad, and now, you know, twenty plus 
you know, almost 30 years later, and we got to reconnect, so that's pretty neat. Yeah. The other point about longevity, and one of the reasons, many reasons, we have been connected to the Phillies for so long is that the people there have remained the same. The ownership with Bill Giles and then Dave Montgomery and now John Middleton and the Bucks, they've been there mm-hmm. for 30-some years. And the employees have been there. So they, they have adopted ALS not only as the Phillies charity, but some personally as, oh, the, yeah. as their own. Um, I know, like people, and then people like Tony Burns, who started as an intern there. Right. I know it's still very important to them. And after the, uh, the Festival League here, they're personally celebrating how well it did. Exactly. Which yeah. is really awesome to see. Right. So back to how we met. Uh, Susan had mentioned, um, as I said, Brian and his family. And we were fortunate enough every year to have access to a skybox at Veterans Stadium from uh, one of our wonderful benefactors, Mr. Muller, John C. C. John Muller. And he... um, So we invited people, and Sue, we asked Sue, is there anybody you want to bring? And she said, oh, I'd love to bring this family. And and it was your reputation preceded you, but there you were in the flesh with your folks, and that's how we met. And then after that, soon after that, at some, we started the, well, I don't know how soon, but we started the Hershey Walk. We are celebrating the anniversary of our relationship with Hershey, um, it'll be 20 years. It's 20 years oh this goodness. year so that we started. I guess it was 90, would that be 96? Yeah. That it was an official ALS association. Senate, like, center, yeah. yeah. And Sue just had 20 years maybe a year ago because it took her a year right. to get things moving. So um, I attribute <clears throat> our relationship to really Sue's tenacity because she went and knew we had to have more patients just statistically than we did. And she made the connection with Zach Simmons, who's also been there forever, Dr. Simmons. And together they set up this center, which just keeps growing and growing and doing really exciting research that's not been done anywhere else. And so it is about longevity and being a champion and carrying the banner for as long as it takes. So some things have stayed the same for 30 and 20 years right. um, in terms of people realizing the significance of the disease and then doing more. But a lot of things have changed, which is what we want because right. of the awareness and the fundraising and the advocacy that's happened in, in Harrisburg and Washington as well. So for both of you, um, Brian, maybe you first because it's a little bit less time. Not, not, not a whole much. lot less, right? <laughs> um, what things have you seen that have changed? When it comes to what you see about ALS than what it was when you first were affected by it? Well, I think the the most obvious one probably is just the public awareness. I mean, I think that's the one thing that the Ice Bucket Challenge brought was suddenly everybody was talking about it. You know, while, while, you know, we certainly had a good local involvement, you know, with the Phillies and, and, uh, you know, Hershey Medical Center and all the different partners early on, it, it was really the Ice Bucket Challenge, I think, that brought it onto the national uh, stage just because of the overwhelming success in terms of the fundraising and 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 the awareness that came with it, um, and then obviously the medical advances have just been phenomenal in terms of um, you know pr- 
previously when my parents uh, were sick, you know, mapping the human genome wasn't even really on anybody's immediate radar at that right. point, but they've since done that. They've been able to identify genetics and, and certain genes, and, and the research that's being done there uh, is really, I, I think, going to ultimately continue to be life-changing uh, for anybody who has ALS. And I think, you know, the fundraising component of that certainly plays into it. But also the, as you alluded to, the people who are just personally invested and interested in it that make it their passion, uh, and I've that's the one of the neat aspects of this job is being able to meet people like that in a whole you know whether it's the academic environment whether it's in the association or just personally um, you know because of because of the uniqueness of ALS, the one thing that I've noticed, and I've gotten, unfortunately, I've gotten several emails from folks in the district who have it, or their relatives have it, and they say, you know, who do I call? Where do I go? And that network um, is much more expansive than, than it was at that time as well, and I, I think it's great. And then um, because of that, we've been able to keep building off of each of those previous successes. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that someday it, it will not be the same it won't be the same prognosis that Alan and, and my sister and I both had to deal with because it, I think it will ultimately become treatable and, and or curable. And I think that that is, that's the goal obviously that we're all working towards. Yeah. And I think that that can become a reality with, with that kind of focus. And that hopefulness that you see in that progress um, and then all the other stories you see, I'm sure make it easier to advocate in Harrisburg. Right. Because if you go to Harrisburg and say, we need, we need funding, and, and you and others um, have uh, championed for us to get a line item in the state budget between us and our friends at the Western PA chapter, which is helping patient care. But it's, it's, e it's one thing to get that funding because of very personal stories, which obviously make a difference. But it helps when you see that there's personal stories coupled with success. Right. And advancements. Yeah, and that, that really... Um some of that groundwork had been laid, and I certainly can't take credit for it uh, because Representative Shapiro, um, mm -hmm. who is now a county commissioner, um, he, his friend Wes, mm -hmm. uh, who came down with ALS. Um, my first term up there, Josh kind of came and introduced himself to me. And, uh, you know, we began working on that issue. At that time, they were in the majority, I, we were in the minority. And I, if I remember correctly, it was a Department of Health grant. Uh, the first year, right. and then in subsequent years, we were able to get it into the budget uh, as an individual line item uh, that was specific. And you know, I, you know, Chairman Adolph uh, from Delaware County has been phenomenally supportive. And the nice thing about the issue is it transcends political lines. Oh yeah. Uh, so Republicans and Democrats have always consistently worked towards it, and the personal stories have an impact um, because I'm finding out more and more that people personally know someone who has been impacted by it. And I think part of that is we're getting better at diagnosing it, mm -hmm, so we definitely. recognize it a lot mm -hmm. sooner. Uh, but then they, for them, it becomes that same personal investment that we've seen for some you know, decades, really, in, in the movement. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen that as well in terms of the change, is that more people are invested in it, and we've also made a lot of progress on it. Right, I can uh, have specifics. Uh, my husband received the first generation of what we then called talking computers. Mm -hmm. It came in a box and no one knew how to use it, including the person who sold it to us. Mm -hmm. And by that time, it was 1984, uh, my husband was so debilitated that it would, was exhausting for him to try to learn how to use it, and he was quite smart. 
but it, he, it was just bulky and it involved too much, not brain power, but just physical power to, to figure out how to use it. And we resorted to um, an iBoard mm -hmm. to get the message out. And it was just so sad. It literally sat in the box. And mm -hmm. look at what we have today. Look what's going on today with assistive technology and how people are using uh, brain-computer interface. Which is happening at Hershey Medical Center. Exactly. Right. And there's just so much. Um, we have Elisa Brownlee, our assistive technology specialist, um, on here at our chapter and also she works nationally and she can have people turn on their environment literally their television their lights the heat by using their eyes mm -hmm. so uh none of that was available it sounded like science fiction back in 1984 you bet yeah it sounded like science fiction in 1994 <laughs> yeah uh, my mom also had a dynavox computer um, mm -hmm. i'm not sure what generation it was but i do remember it being clunky and it actually, in a lot of ways, was more frustrating uh, right. than it was assistive at right. that time. And, and, mm -hmm. and it was not really anybody's fault. It just had not been fine-tuned to the point where it was now. You know, in terms of the interface, um, you know, our options were essentially a, a touchpad or um, a lanyard, for lack of a better term. It was like a pull cord. Um, and, you know, she could use that to stop on pictures or make sentences and things. And oftentimes we would just, we would, use a letter board as well mm -hmm. because it was the easy, it was still the most functional thing to use in terms of time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then I actually was able to use one of the eye uh, triggered devices. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, at one of the clinics. And I was just amazed, you know, at, at the technological advances that had occurred even mm -hmm. in 20 years. Yeah. Um, and can only imagine uh, what, what, what will continue to happen going forward. And we have some people that come to Harrisburg and they move through the halls of Harrisburg with their eyes. I'd just like to also second what Brian was saying um, about research. In 1993, the SOD1 gene was identified. Now it is 2016, and they are about to go into trial for the second time. Uh, they've revamped this, uh, what's called an antisense uh, program where it is designed it, through an infusion, uh, they are able to send, this, I'm simplifying this, the gene is uh, targeted, this, this therapy, this treatment is targeted to the gene, and it uh, hopefully will stay, reach the gene, stay in the body long enough to turn the gene off. Yep. Now this will not be a permanent fix. It will stop the progression of the disease for three to four months, at which point they can have this procedure done again. Um, it, hasn't, it's, it hasn't started its second trial. The first trial didn't reach, it, it wasn't strong enough. The, the therapy didn't reach the gene, didn't stay long enough in the body. But now the FDA sent it back, and two years later, they're about to start again. Um, so that's one thing. They're also working on that with the C9ORF. Those are the two main genes that, that you mentioned. But when you look at personalized medicine, which you're talking about, being able to uh, sequence a patient's genome and look at do they have these diseases or do they, uh, genes, or do they have other genes that might be causing ALS that haven't been identified 
and then saying, okay, uh, this is a new gene. I know this is happening. Some, and they've made a mouse of one of our patients' uh, genes that hasn't been, um, that no one knew about. Well, they knew about it, but I guess they hadn't. They I, didn't I understand it all. They didn't understand it, and I don't understand a lot. So um, You understand so more than most. That's, that's a whole different type of technology. And so what I've seen is just so much advancements. 1995, I was on the FDA advisory panel that approved Reliatech. Um, and before I, before, uh, I guess after it was approved, um, I went to um, Paris. On, I paid myself. I didn't want any drug company taking me. And I thought, oh, this is going to be amazing. You know, we're going to have a cure for ALS. And we have this press conference, and they announced that there is a three-month increase in survival. And people who weren't scientists there were like, like me, and Bob Abendroth, who was head of the research committee at that time, were like, three months? Right. Which three months? Right, that's, exactly. That's it? That's it? And you know, really, really tech was the only thing on the market, and still is. Now, there's um, <clears throat> a a program that hopefully will come to be where they're repurposing Reliatech by using uh, another drug to bump up its efficacy so it too stays in the body longer and can increase survival. So kind of what goes around comes around and I'm seeing every time I go to a research committee meeting or receive almost weekly research updates from our national um, and listen to Wes Rose, who is our patient for over 10 years. And very smart. <laughs> and a geneticist, by, right. by the way. Um, and he is so encouraged, so that makes me feel even more encouraged. Yeah. And, and part of the thing that Wes has done, that both of you have done, has been an advocate. Mm -hmm. um, and in Washington, D.C., that has been for the ALS registry, which has helped a lot of these things. Sure. It's helping scientists understand the um, research project at the Department of Defense. So... For those of you listening, uh, if you want to get involved, because advocacy is clearly making a difference in research and in patient care, uh, we'll be in Washington, D.C. from May 8th to 10th, and you can of do May. that. Of May. Uh, I think I said May 8th to 10th. Um, and then... Go back and listen to it. Uh, I'm not going to edit it. So from May 8th to 10th, and we'll be in Harrisburg on May 18th. Uh, you can email me, Tony, at ALSPhiladelphia.org, or go to ALSA.org slash advocacy to go to Washington. Um, but... Clearly, those stories, that progress, the understanding of research, that's driving more people to be advocates. The number of people that come to Harrisburg and Washington keeps going up. Um, and you see a lot more people, Brian, that come, which is a, both a plus and a minus, because you don't really want to meet more people with ALS. Right. Not that you don't want to meet them, but you want it to be less people. Sure. Um, but it makes a difference when now there's you, we go to meetings and there's a group of people that are coming instead of just, instead of just Ellen. Nothing against Ellen. Right? Like, it makes a right. difference that there's so many people that are sharing their story. I want to tell a great story. Good. Um, Stories make a difference. Uh, about uh, something that happened in Washington one year that I, when I was there. Um, and it shouldn't matter what your politics are when I tell the story, because actually there's a Democrat involved and a Republican. But no wigs. No wigs. <laughs> and one was in office, and the other one just makes uh, their uh, policy, their politics known. So I was visiting um, with Kurt and Shonda Schilling. Mm -hmm. uh, Kurt 
the hero of Boston, the Boston curse and abolishing it by his pitching. And a hero to our, the ALS organization. Absolutely. He's been involved with ALS since he came to Philadelphia with four wins and he left with 101. Uh, so we, that's the kind of progress you get if you get involved with the ALS Association. If you're a professional athlete, it. join us and your skills will just skyrocket. Amazing. So um, I went, they, they are, were and are still living in Massachusetts. So we went and met with Senator Curry, Kerry at the time, John Kerry. Oh, right. Uh, and we told him all about veterans because our priority that year, one of our priorities, but our main priority was getting veterans benefits because it had been shown that ALS was twice as likely to affect veterans. Including your husband. Correct. Yes. Absolutely. So um, we had a great meeting with him, and he was all charged up. And I understand that he, what, when he left our meeting, he left the Senate building. And as he was leaving the building, a person in a wheelchair came up wearing their ALS badge, and he said to them, ALS, veterans, I'm on it. Hmm. And he voted for it. And he, and he got other people involved, too. Exactly. So that's what happens. Absolutely. So, you know, that I, I will never forget that. I mean, that, that that's an amazing story, and that really is what happens, Brian, right? Like, if you're Inspire One lawmaker, you guys kind of talk to each other. Okay? Yes. So, that, I mean, I know a lot of lawmakers come to you for their story, but suddenly, I, I mean, I've met people who said, oh, I talked to... Steve or Pam or Josh or whatever, and they told me that they met a constituent and it was really powerful. Right. So I want everyone that's listening to share your story. It makes a big difference. Um, and so that is going to help with fundraising. It's going to help with growing those connections and in advocacy as well. Now, one last thing. We, we're going to end this podcast, but what do we want to do with the future? Um, what do you guys hope to see? We, we're sadly not going to have a cure in 2016, probably. Um, but, you know, crazier things that happen, maybe. Right. Um, but do you have any sort of things that you, you see on the horizon that you think that we can accomplish, whether it's with advocacy or with fundraising or just awareness out there? Well, I think in terms of advocacy, and Ellen kind of alluded to this already, um, with veterans being twice as likely, one of, the, one of the things that I've noticed a lot of legislators realize is Pennsylvania has historically had the largest deployment during the war on terror. Um, throughout the, its duration in terms of our National Guards units. We've been statistically one of the highest mm -hmm. states in terms of number of guardsmen and women who have been deployed, which unfortunately probably means that there will be an uptick in ALS as we go forward. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that we have to have the infrastructure in place before that happens. Thankfully, a lot of the lawmakers recognize that. I think we're going to continue to work towards that um, as we go forward. And, you know, I think... The other piece, and we kind of talked all around it, but I don't want to understate its importance, and that is finding folks uh, in the community who share similar experiences. Um, while we all want to go out and advocate on behalf of the disease and, and a cure and do fundraising, an equally important part is simply sharing your life experiences with someone else who's going through it so that they can better cope with their existing situation. Yeah. Uh, and that is, it's, that's another area where I think the association does a great job. I know um, my mom would go to the, the clinic meetings and it, it was part medical, part support group in a lot of ways. And, and that I, I don't think should be missed uh, because um, that's ultimately... Uh, you know, I shared off 
off podcast that I started out life scared of public speaking. I hated it. I ended up taking classes in high school to overcome that fear. But in large part, it was because I wanted to share my parents' story so that I could share that to hopefully help someone else that was going through. Maybe it wasn't ALS. Maybe it was cancer. Maybe it was some other illness. And that, I think, is powerful because... um, at the end of the day, I think a lot of our stories are similar. And I think that at some point, I think one of the best things that you can do is derive a value out of that experience to share with someone else. I 100% agree. And I know you, you brought up how Wes and Josh were friends, Wes Rose and Josh Shapiro. And they became friends. But they became friends. They fr- didn't meet each They didn't right. know each other before. But part of it was that I think their kids played sports together. Like they were, they were in the community. So mm-hmm. they, were, they were able to connect as fathers and human beings, right, not exactly. as a person right. ALS and alumni. Well, and truthfully, I mean, I, I consider Josh uh, a friend myself, right. and we've stayed in contact even after he left the legislature. Mm-hmm. And um, in large part, it's because of that common interest uh, as well, um, you know, and, and that networking that, that just naturally happens. Right. And it, it helps because you just connect on a human level, not right. just on like, this is my role, this is my role. So, Ellen, you've seen a lot of progress, especially in research and things. Mm-hmm. Um, what is something that we can tell people as we end here? You know, keep fighting because we think, you know, here's some more hope on the horizon. We're very close with some of these trials with needing money to increase what we're doing so that we wouldn't ever have to stop. And I would like to make an impassioned plea that people realize that no matter how much money we raise, yes, we raised a lot of money for ALS research with the Ice Bucket Challenge. That money is designated for incredibly important research. So, and from the discoveries that we make from that research, we will go on and on. But we can't go on and on if we don't have the dollars. So... The fact that we did raise a hundred some million nationally for ALS research, well, we're now in year two and and we've made progress and there have been lots of discoveries, new technology, there's prizes now being offered for the discovery of biomarkers, but please never say we have too much money because mm-hmm. we never will have enough money until we have a cure for ALS. And we have a lot of projects that are getting us closer there, including many happening right here in our area, Hershey and Philadelphia, uh, throughout our region, and uh, throughout the world that we're funding. Definitely. So thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ellen, for talking on our podcast today. Share your stories and to advocate for more advocacy. Again, you can find out more about how to get involved on our website, www.alsphiladelphia.org. And if you want to just email me to find out about advocacy or about other podcast topics, that's Tony at ALSphiladelphia.org. We appreciate your support.